welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the action figure of Sting as Fabe for the 1984 film of June came with battlematic action. Basically, you press a very large button and the shoulders move slightly. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seemed to is musician, comedian, writer, just about everything really, Mitch Ben. Mitch, what are you up to? Where can we find it? I don't have any of those dude battle figures. It's just weird because I'm a staunch defender of that movie. What am I up to? Well, I, I refer the honourable gentleman to the answer I gave him 13 months ago. Uh, <laughs> Little did we suspect when we did one of these back in October 2020 that the world, which had then indeed come grinding to a halt, wouldn't really have started up again yet. A whole year later, I am still predominantly, I guess, working online. That's where I do most of my work these days. The Patreon thing is still a, an absolutely essential lifeline and, and, and quite a fun thing to do as well, just from a kind of collaborative standpoint. I, I like the fact that the patrons aren't just sort of subscribers. They're actually collaborators. We actually throw ideas around together, which is great fun. I've been doing bits and bobs of live stuff. I did a sort of smattering of festivals around the beginning of the summer, one in Cambridge, one in room down in Zumrazat. And that's been pretty much it, to be honest. I don't really anticipate getting heavily back into playing live until the spring, summer of next year, because that's when things will start to kick back in for me. I'm going to be doing Edinburgh again. That's already in hand. And the preparation for that, well, the, 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 the administrative preparation for that begins the minute Christmas is over, but the actual, the writing and previewing of it tends to begin in sort of May, June. So that's when I anticipate that happening. And then I will be at Edinburgh for the whole of August. And then I will be touring whatever it is I just did at Edinburgh for the latter half of next year. So I, I will be throwing myself wholeheartedly back into the live stuff about then. But in the meantime, I'm still writing my newspaper column in the New European. I've still got a funny little bit on Times Radio every Friday lunchtime. I'm still pumping out online content with a vengeance. And my three science fiction books are back out. That is, I suppose, the big development since last week's book. That, again, was at the planning stages about a year ago, but it now has all happened. My sci-fi trilogy, Terror, Terror's World and Terror's War are all now available on paperback and ebook from the usual places. And the first two are out in audiobook and the third one will be out in audiobook very, very soon. Although I've been putting the third one together in audiobook myself and it's turned out to be an infinitely more mammoth undertaking than I could have anticipated. That is finished. It's just a question of getting it optimized to a standard that Audible are happy with and then that will be up there. Hopefully by the time a lot of your good people hear this, that will be available. And then my next book, Rome, R-O-A-M, will be coming out next year. It's as mad and convoluted as it always was, Tim. <laughs> Well, that's made your first choice rather accidentally opposite because apparently, as far as I can tell, this band were the first ever to release a piece of music solely via the internet. Now, I have a story about these which we'll come back to, but let's just hear them in action first. At eight o'clock we said goodbye That's when I left her house for mine She said that she'd be staying in Well, she had to be At work by nine So I get home Pass. 
Okay, well, no, I don't know where she's been, but that's Monday Morning 519 by Rialto. Mitch, who were they? Rialto were kind of last gasp Brit poppers. They were kind of late to the party Brit poppers. I had a weird relationship with Brit pop as a genre and as a scene. On the one hand, I found the unexpectedness of the whole thing to be quite refreshing because I remember reading articles in the very early 90s about how there would be no more pop stars. That was it. That was the, the, the era of the pop star was over because the wheels had finally come off the Stock Aitken and Waterman thing. The chart was full of completely anonymous dance acts with names like something off an optician's eye chart, like LK12 or something. <laughs> <laughs> and even if they bothered to turn up on top of the pops, they were wearing hazmat suits. <laughs> you know, the future of pop music was going to be these faceless dance acts. And also, don't even remember the early 90s, those incredibly antiseptic light dance covers of 70s M.O.R. hits like Baker Street. That was what was in the charts in like 93. And I remember reading articles saying, that's it, no more pop stars, there will be no more pop stars. And then 18 months later, the biggest thing in pop music was British guitar bands. And I just love the randomness of that and the fact that nobody at the beginning of the 90s, with the possible exception of maybe Brett Anderson and David Albarn, could possibly have seen that coming. That the biggest thing in the mid-90s was going to be British guitar bands. On the other hand, most of the music itself was completely depressing. Um, because it was slavish recreations of stuff done earlier by cleverer people. And this is a conversation I've had many times with many people on many subjects. There's a difference between emulating someone and imitating them. By all means, emulate your heroes. That's how you get good. But don't think you can emulate your heroes by imitating your heroes, because the people you're imitating didn't imitate anybody. That's what drove me nuts about Joker. You know, I just thought, I could just watch Taxi Driver and King of Comedy again. <laughs> And when it all kicks off and they play White Room by Cream, I'm like, oh, for Christ's sake, Todd. You know what I mean? Why don't you just put up a caption on the sky saying, I really want to be Martin Scorsese. Anyway, so that was what was depressing about Britpop. It's how thoroughly unoriginal most of the actual music was. It was like really Luddite. It was really retrograde. It was really, it sort of fetishized its own lack of adventurousness. I remember seeing an interview with some numpty. I can't even remember who it was going, well, this is our best album ever. Because we recorded the whole thing on air track analog with valve amplifiers. And I remember thinking, well, maybe it is your best album ever, but that's not why you daft twat. You know, do you honestly think that the Beatles wouldn't have used Pro Tools if it had been available? You know, the whole point of the Beatles is that's the sound of people constantly butting up against the limits of recording technology and then having to improvise new things. But I quite liked Rihalto, first of all, because I kind of had a twinge of sympathy with him because I could kind of tell right from the beginning that it probably wasn't going to work. But secondly, they were drawing inspiration from slightly more interesting places. Yes, there was a big 60s thing going on, but it was just kind of a cinematic 60s thing going on. Massive John Barry fixation. Now, they weren't alone in this in sort of 97, 98, because that was, you know, around the time of the rise of David Arnold when he finally got the Bond franchise and released his album of Bond covers. And it was all about just trying to sound as much like John Barry as possible. And Robbie Williams did that one with the loop from You Only Live Twice. So, you know, there was a lot of John Barry sort of sound in the charts at the time. But Rialto seemed to be taking it. There was a kind of a gloss to what they were doing that had been absent from a lot of Britpop. There was kind of a, a European feel to what they were doing. There was a kind of a French feel to a lot of what they were doing. And their look kind of reflected this. They were sort of smartly dressed but disheveled. 
you know, that was their look. They're sort of wearing Pierre Cardin suits with the shirt untucked and the flies undone. You know what I mean? And they have, you know, that mark of ostentation in any pop combo. They had the two drummers because they were trying to go for a kind of a Phil Spector bigness as well. And I really like that first album. I like the look. I like the use of the um, the UFO typeface. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the fact that Rialto used the same font and their logo that Shadow did. You know, I, I quite like that. That was a nice little nod to the era they were evoking. They were kind of trying to evoke 1969 rather than 1966, I guess, is what was kind of interesting about it. Although I finally realized what Monday Morning 519 is tuned from. It's got a definite kind of French feel in the way the chords loop around each other. And I've been trying to work out what is it specifically that this song reminds me of. Finally figured it out. It's the Ferrero Rocher advert. Yes. Yeah. I've always <laughs> thought that. It is. It's the Ambassador's Reception. It's the Ambassador's Reception. You can kind of see Rialto playing at the Ambassador's Reception. Yes. Now, I've got my own amusing story about Rialto. Do you want, shall I do mine first and then we'll do yours in a minute? Yeah, I'm wondering if they'll actually be more or less the same. The, but do the, there on. may well be a bit of crossover because the other interesting thing about Rialto is who their lead singer is slash was. Their lead singer was a guy called Louis Elliott, who used to be in Kinky Machine. Louis is an interesting character because he has a fascinating background. Louis is gentry. Right, Louis is landed gentry. Louis is the second son, I believe I'm right in saying, of the Earl of St. Germans. And I only found this out because I've done a rock festival that happens in his garden every year. <laughs> that every year, I think it's still going. I've played it, I think, three times now. There is a rock festival down in Cornwall called the Port Elliot Festival. And it's Elliot as in Louis, because Louis's family owns, th- oh, what's it called? Is it Castle St. Germans or Castle Elliot? Anyway, they own this massive stately home in Cornwall and all the grounds surrounding it. And I think Louis's old man might have died. And I think that the Earl is now Louis's elder brother. I think that might be where we're up to with that. But every year, I think at Louis's instigation, they would put on this honest to goodness rock festival in the grounds of Castle Elliot. And I've played it, played the spoken word tent there three or four times. And it's great. And Louis's always lurking about. The last time I spoke to Louis, he was playing guitar in Grace Jones's touring band. I seem to recall. So I've met him a bunch of times. He's a really, really nice guy, but he's just, he straddles two, one would rethink, almost entirely unconnected worlds. Pop star and the House of Lords. He's a fascinating character. And a good songwriter. Rialto's tunes were good. And that's the other thing about them, is that their tunes were good, and with the possible exception of the Ferrero Rocher ad, they weren't instantly recognisable as something else, unlike nearly all of Britpop, which is most of Britpop. The minute you heard it, you knew what they'd nicked it from. Rialto might take you a little while to figure out what they'd nicked it from. I think I could tell at the time that it wasn't really worth In fact, I've read somewhere that didn't like their record company go bust between them recording and releasing the album. Well, that leads into my story, which is that going back to the very beginning of it, you mentioned Kinky Machine. I was quite a big fan of them at the time. I imagine people don't remember them now, but they were going for sort of like Hendrix, early Floyd sound, but with kind of Bon Jovi choruses. I think it's the best way of describing it. But the thing was, I was about to say they were the wrong band at the wrong time at the start of Britpop. (laughs) But the start of Britpop, before Oasis appeared, you know, your Blur, Suede, Elastica and so on. Saint Etienne, I mean, their name is French for a start, but they were all 
doing yeah. very different things. I mean, if you look at Parklife, very little on that is like what you call Britpop. You know, you've got the Francois Hardy pastiche stuff. You've got kind of mod organ stuff. But Kinky Machine kind of, in a way, fitted with that. But they didn't take off, even though the evening session were really behind them. I remember that. I remember Supernatural Giver being playlisted by Radio 1, I think. But they just didn't happen. But years later, Rialto appeared. And I thought, oh, that's them. Because it was most of the same band, actually. And I went to see them. Well, they were supporting Echo and the Bunnymen. But I actually, this is going to get me a lot of glamours from people. I actually went to see Rialto rather than Echo and the Bunnymen. At the Royal Court in Liverpool, the first support band that were on, I didn't think were much good, so I went to the bar. While I was standing at the bar, I thought, I recognised those blokes standing next to me. I realised it was Rialto, and they looked really, really down. They said, what's up? And they said, we just found out today our record company has dropped us. Right. And they were like, we're still going to go ahead and do the show. And I thought, well, good for you. That is, you know, that really is kind of trying to salvage something out of a bad situation. But I've never been able to get to the bottom of why, other than that the record label did go out of business not long afterwards. They might have been dropped. But there was a thing of, I think, a lot of latecomers to the Britpop party were dropped by record labels around then. Because have you ever read The Last Party by John Harris? There's a bit in it where he describes how, because it's a brilliant bit where Louise Weather from Sleepers talking about when they got dropped by the label. And she says, I just walked out of the building and I thought, that's it, I'm back in the crowd. You know, that's quite an amazing thing. But they list all these bands that I sort of half remembered that got dropped by the record label in that same month. And ends by saying, it was safe to assume Keith from Northern Uproar would not not be buying a casino but we also are on that list so maybe it's just a general trend but i've never forgotten that you know you could have forgiven them for just thinking oh that's it yeah, we don't it. care yeah. we don't feel like playing tonight but they went ahead and did it and they were really good yeah well i never got to see them live yeah i read somewhere that i forget which level it was either dropped them and or went under between their album being finished and released so the album was released by a company other than the company which had essentially commissioned it but they'd already had that happen to them before the first album came out and then I think they put another album out in about 2001 and then that was pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's how kind of the world has changed these days, I suppose, is that if you get dropped by your record company now, as long as you owned the master, you'd just stick it out yourself, wouldn't you? Yeah, and apparently there was between them getting dropped and the album coming out, as I say, apparently they did release a scheduled single themselves, not digitally, but through the internet. You could only buy it through their website and it got right. mailed to you. But it's the first time any one had done that apparently and you think that would have been a bigger story at the time no it's true I mean, in that respect they were you know kind of innovative but it's a very weird situation you've got now how, how essential a part of the record company still are I couldn't really tell you I mean, rather confused about a month ago when Ryan Adams resurfaced Ryan Adams I'm sure you know American singer-songwriter got sort of very heavily me tooed about a year ago didn't he but he resurfaced about a month ago I think on Facebook pleading for a new record deal because the thing is he's running out of money and I think everybody he's kind of forgotten who he is but I'm thinking to myself well a new record deal isn't actually going to change anything because I don't know to what extent he's still got a crowd because audiences can be ridiculously loyal to acts and you know I don't know to what extent what came out about him has ruined his fan base I don't know whether his fan base is staying with him I don't know whether his fan base have abandoned him or whether they've turned on him or not but if his fan base have turned on him then him getting a new record deal isn't going to change that if the fan base is gone then him getting a new record deal wouldn't change that and if the fan base is still there if the fan base 
have decided to forgive him and the fan base is still on side, even if it's only a couple hundred thousand people, he doesn't need a record company. He needs a MacBook and Bandcamp. And he'd probably make more money out of that than he would out of a record deal. So why he seems to think getting a new record deal is going to save him, I don't know. I don't know anybody of any kind of size and weight signs a record deal at the moment. If you've got the profile, then you don't really need them. That's, anyway, that's me never getting signed again. Okay, well, it's interesting to bring up Rialto's influences because your next choice was a parody of a TV series in the late 60s where, let's just say, they might have been listening very closely to the soundtrack. Number seven, thank you so much for coming up. Do sit down. Look, what is this place? Who are you? I am number two, and this is the village. Get to know it well, number seven. From now on, it's your home. It's your home until you give us certain information that we require from you. Well, I'm perfectly happy to tell you anything you would like to know. What would you like to know? Don't play games with me, number seven. I'm not very good at them. By hook or by crook, by fair means or foul, we will find out why you resign. Well, it's perfectly simple. For a I begin to weary of your impertinent tricks, number seven. OK, you recognise Jules Holland and Stephen Fry talking there. You'll also be thinking, that sounds a bit like they're talking about The Prisoner. So, Mitch, what was The Laughing Prisoner? The Laughing Prisoner was an entire episode of The Tube, quite late in The Tube's run. In fact, it might actually have been one of the very last things The Tube ever did. An entire episode given over to a full-length parody of The Prisoner. And it was particularly weird because this kind of coincided with the absolute apex of my own complete immersion in Prisoner fandom. This could have been absolutely, you know, laser-sighted at my brain. Jules storms out of the tube in high dudgeon. I, th- I forget whether this is before or after the groovy fuckers incident. I suspect it was after. And having been sort of, you know, censured one time too often, jumps in a conspicuous Lotus 7 and resigns and, of course, finds himself in an incredibly cold-looking Port Marion. I seem to recall this being on in about February, March of 1987. And it looks like it was shot in January 1987 because I've been to Port Marion at many different times of year. and That's the coldest I've ever seen it look. In fact, it's actually snowed over for a couple of bits, isn't it? So it is utterly frigid looking Port Marion. Whereupon he encounters Stephen Fry, bits of the old show with Magoo and edited in to make it look like Magoo is also wandering around the village at the same time as all this. And Stephen Fry is, of course, number two, as he would have made a magnificent number two. And occasionally they cut away to slightly in Congress musical numbers being performed in various bits of the village. Susie and the Banshees doing their version of The Passenger down by the swimming pool and then XTC turn up on the chessboard and bizarrely Magnum largely forgotten late 80s Brit metalers turn up at the colonnade doing a song called Vigilante all wearing really heavy overcoats and fingerless gloves and looking like they want to go home. Like I said at the time I was completely immersed in prisoner fandom. I was a very active member of Six of One, the Prisoner Appreciation Society. I know we've talked about this before. We used to go to the Port Marion conventions where they would have the convention in Port Marion for the first weekend and play the chess game and do the election parade and everybody would get dressed up. But then the real hardcore would stick around for a week in Port Marion exchanging contraband tapes of Man in a Suitcase and Jason King, none of which had ever been shown on British TV since about 1972 all incredibly hard to come by. It was just an odd thing because I know Jules Holland is, I get the impression he's a big prisoner fan. I know he's a massive Port Merion fan and he's had, I think, the house he lives in painted up to look like Port Merion. So it's all white stucco with pastel bits. And I know Stephen Fry was 
a big prisoner fan as well. But it's an odd thing to do. One has difficulty imagining the process by which something like this got commissioned. But then again, I guess this is just coming to the end of Channel 4's really freewheeling phase, wasn't it, about 1987? Those first four or five years of Channel 4's existence, they actually put some serious effort into being as freewheeling and unpredictable as possible. After that, they kind of settled down into an identity, and that identity has been evolving ever since. But for the first four years there, it was genuinely, you know, well, what wouldn't ITV, you know, would ITV do this? Not in a million years. Right, we're doing it. That seemed to be the guiding principle. Well, it gets forgotten about the tube now. You know, you never see this represented in clip shows or anything, or when people reminisce about it. They occasionally did one-off weird episodes. When the comic strip presents Supergrass came out, they presented the tube from, like, this really small local cinema saying it was the premiere and the cast were all there and yeah, I think Jennifer Saunders pretended to be sick and so on you know and it's like does this like a really low rent thing that's never resurfaced but they did sometimes do weird things like that and I remember seeing this at the time and I don't think I'd actually seen I'd seen bits of the Channel 4 repeat to The Prisoner but it was on a little bit too late for me to be allowed to watch all the time at that point because I think it was on quite late the 83 repeats. Well, late-ish. It might have clashed with something that everyone else wanted to watch in that case. Could be one of those other weird things where what now is a minor age difference at the time was quite a big deal. So yeah, you probably would have been a bit little to be allowed to stay up to watch the 84, 83, 84 repeats of The the Prisoner. Stuff like this keeps jumping out of it. I remember when the Transformers movie started coming in the noughties or whatever, and a lot of friends of mine who I thought of as contemporaries were going, oh my god, they made Transformers movies can't wait for the Transformers I'm like really? Because I thought Transformers were... And I went away and did the maths and figured out that I'm literally, I think, 18 months too old to have been in the Transformers. Because I think Transformers were a big deal when I was 15. And when you're 15, anything the 13-year-olds are into is play school shit. It's untouchably infantile. You will not go near it. And I think that was the case with me and Transformers. Was ugh. But I think that could be it. I'd grown up hearing about The Prisoner because we, for my entire childhood, went on holiday to a place in North Wales that was not that far from Port Merion, over the other side of the peninsula, but only about, you know, 45 minutes drive away from Port Merion. So Port Merion would come up in conversation every now and again. And my dad had been a big fan of it my dad had enjoyed he, he just liked the, the sheer weirdness of it he just liked it. so i kept hearing about the prison i would read things about it so by the time it was finally repeated and i think the last time it'd been repeated was like a late sunday night thing on itv about 1976 and i'd missed that again probably too little to stay up that kind of late and then when it was repeated on channel four i watched all of it absolutely avidly and it was even weirder than i'd been led to imagine and i just it, it became something an obsession of mine throughout the whole of my teenage years and then this tube episode would have come out not long after I turned 17 when I was at the absolute apex of my prisoner obsession so it was almost like they'd made it for me well one of the big things for me watching this again was it was really really a really good feeling to see XTC do the man who sailed around his soul and they really sort of get into the hole because they were quite into things like the prisoner anyway and they really <laughs> get into the getting into costume and playing along being in Port Merion the album that that came from Skylarking is one of my favourite albums but I'd had a difficult 
difficult time listening to it for a while because we're not going to go too far into it but one of them said some let's describe them as debatable things on twitter related to some news events and there was a big storm about it quite sad this he ended up because i tried to question what he's saying rationally he blocked me which is a bit of a heavy heart feeling people getting blocked by one of your teen idols is never well yeah Yeah. people were texting me saying are you okay he's not said any more since then but it's the album i think with the biggest division the songwriting credits but it's been so good to rediscover it over the last couple of days because i feel like okay listening to it again it's such a good album that it's beyond kind of well it's not even cancellation is it it was a mild dispute about something i know who you mean and you know what you said and we shall not relitigate it here i don't know the prisoners it's it's a weird one it just keeps recurring in popular culture it just it just comes i did a, a youtube video a couple of months ago about why it might just be the most important tv show ever the, the, the things it introduced and again largely by default a lot of innovations come about by accident it's incredibly of its time and incredibly ahead of its time all of a sudden you know it couldn't have happened any time other than 1967 in retrospect and it's an example of how it's sometimes the best ideas come about by accident like have you seen the footage of what rover was supposed to be yes yeah, yeah like this angry cupcake um, <laughs> that was one of the big things that was one of the things you discovered as you got into prison of fandom things like for example the alternate theme tunes the wrong grain of theme tune was the third attempt at writing a theme tune vestiges of the first attempt by Edwin Astley still turn up in the incidental music then there was a second one I can't remember who it's by that had this kind of weird Elmer Bernstein Magnificent Seven thing going on and then that, that didn't get used at all and then the wrong grain of one was I think kind of you know desperate last minute job and that's why it's you know there's none of that it doesn't turn although most of the incidental music is just library music for the prison I think that mainly is that but things like an alternate print of Chimes of Big Ben would turn up with the original theme tune on and the bizarre P.O.P. ending have you, do, yes. do you know what I'm talking about yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is just... It's clearly meant to mean something, but yeah, we don't know really, what. No, and for the casual listeners out there, if you have seen The Prisoner, you may know that the end titles are shown over a picture of the canopied penny farthing assembling itself one piece at a time. And then the last shot of it is the canopied penny farthing complete. In the broadcast version, it then cuts to footage of Rover bubbling up from out of the sea and popping up and then zipping off into the horizon. There was a previous version of this whereupon the most inexplicable thing happens. The whole penny farthing fades away except for the two wheels. And if you look at it, you'll swear it's a fake just designed to mess with your head. But this is actually what initially happened at the end of the title sequence of The Prisoner. The two wheels start to rotate. They then fade away. The big wheel becomes a sort of star field, which then spreads across the screen. And the little wheel becomes the planet Earth. The planet Earth drifts up into center frame. And suddenly, from the surface of the Earth, a red dot with the word pop written on it zooms up towards the camera and fills the screen now what the hell that's all about i couldn't even begin to guess it feels like it's yeah a white pop it looks like it's setting something up or it might be a rough edit for maybe the, the thing which said pop was gonna you know well this of course eventually will have the title of the next episode on it but in the meantime just as a sort of placeholder we'll stick the word pop and that'll be good for a laugh and of course the other thing was rover in the script is not a sentient weather balloon rover in the script is a kind of trundling drone robot thing they actually built it and it's pathetic it's got a sort of top like a golfing umbrella and sort of padded around the outsides to kind of make it look like a hovercraft or something but it just looks like a fat cupcake 
It apparently had a guy inside it on a go-kart. Now, he wasn't going to die of carbon monoxide poisoning. I have no idea, incidentally. But they gave up on it because they just couldn't get it to work on set. The guy inside it couldn't see where he was going. They tried to do a shot of it driving up out the sea. And, of course, the engine just choked and flooded in there. How they hit upon having weather balloons instead, I've heard various conflicting theories. But thank heavens they did because the white sphere chasing the guy down the beach became the most memorable image of the prisoner in a way that... An angry fat cupcake chasing somebody along a beach I don't think would have been. <laughs> well that brings me around to something that hasn't resurfaced anywhere ever. I mean I was absolutely stunned by the rover footage because that was something I'd always thought was urban myth, the original rover but you know it sounded too good to be true but yeah there is film of it. It is. Apparently the footage that surfaced is home movie footage by somebody who happened to be there at the time. That None of the actual footage that was shot of it was allowed to survive. The actual thing about this was it was as you suggested inspired by Jules Holland. This is the correct story despite what you read out there he thought he was rehearsing a live trailer for the tube and said yeah. something about groovy fuckers for the amusement of the camera crew and somebody yeah. said you do realize we were on it definitely happened because i remember people that evening i say oh my god did you see that jules holland said groovy fuckers and so yeah. it really happened and there was a you know a bit of a minor minor tabloid kerfuffle about it nothing much happened but it's never resurfaced anywhere you know it absolutely did happen but there's no yeah. actual evidence of it the nearest effect in his autobiography, Jules Holland describes what he said and then says, The tube was on just after Noddy at half past five, and we got as many tots watching as we did adults. Now, nearly every word of that sentence is wrong. So that's right. what we've got to go on. Isn't it very strange that there is no actual first hand evidence of it out there? There is just the fact that it happened. It's irrefutable. But you could yeah. not prove it in a court of law. But I, mean, I guess if nobody was taping it, nobody was taping it. One of those things, it won't have been, you know, officially preserved for anyone. Well, I mean, this is something which is going to kind of come up again a couple of times I think in the rest of this discussion is something I you know that I'm still learning about is how late in the day the TV networks were routinely blanking all their tapes when you come up through Doctor Who fandom as you and I did you tend to think that this is a one-off thing they did in the 70s that they only did it the black and white stuff but it turns out that stuff was fairly routinely purged right up until sort of the end of the 70s if it was perceived as having no repeat value and most stuff was perceived as having no repeat value and even the stuff which did have repeat value most of the contracts that you would sign with the various contributors when you were making it would license you to show it three times you could broadcast it once initially then you could repeat it twice and if you wanted to show it again you had to track down everybody who contributed to them get them to sign more contracts and waivers so once something had been on three times it was officially dead in the water there was nothing you could do with it and that was why but you tend to assume that that sort of only applied to black and white stuff. Those contracts as well are quite often the reason I find it so hard to explain this to people, that things aren't available on streaming or digitally. It's because of a bad contract way back when. I mean, there is yeah. a notable comedy show from the 70s. I'm not going to go into it because I always get emails from people saying, can't you do something about it because you know about it? Well, no, I don't. But basically, it was an attempt to bring it out on DVD. And the star, who was also the writer, had a really bad contract about distribution back in the 70s, which still holds. And it yeah. was technically losing money for it to come out digitally. Yeah. So that's that.
that. And that is also the reason why The Laughing Prisoner isn't on sort of the Prisoner box sets. I think there was a plan to release it on DVD and that fell through. It is just contractual stuff. And people yeah, don't seem to realise that. That that can sometimes just be the cause of it. Well, of course. I mean, you know, all those the musical performances. Susie won't have signed off on a DVD release. Never mind whoever it is who publishes, you know, Iggy Pop's 1970s output who wrote that song. Yeah. Andy Partridge won't have signed off on a DVD release of A Man Who Sailed Around His Soul. That, that would have to be... You'd have to find them all again and, and renegotiate the whole thing. And, it's, and it has almost certainly been a judge not worth the bleeding effort for the 30 or 40 people who might actually want to see that thing again. It's on YouTube, but slightly scrambled. There seem to be bits missing. I couldn't find the whole thing on YouTube. I could only find bits of it, which is kind of odd. And from the edited 1993 repeat as well. Is, is that what it is? Ah, I see. Which I is missing know. John Peel for a start, which is probably a contractual thing. Yeah, Stanley exactly, Unwin yeah. is in there, but not all of his scenes. Which they may have just cut down because he was too confusing. I don't know. Well, possibly, yeah. I didn't even know it had been repeated, so there you go. Yeah, it was slapped in the middle of the early 90s, Channel 4 repeats of The Prisoner. Right, 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 right. Ah, okay, fair play. Right. See, I didn't even know it had ever been on again. As far as I knew, it would have been on the once in 1987 and then pretty much forgotten about. Okay, well, before we go too far into missing TV, you know, which uh-huh. we are going to come back to, here's a singer yeah. who technically has disappeared from history. <laughs> That was Oh Baby by Rihanna, but not the Rihanna you're thinking of. Mitch, who was this one? This was Rihanna, R-H-I-A-N-N-A. Now, the Rihanna you all know of Umbrella fame, if you look, spells her name R-I-H-A-N-N-A. Her name is actually Rihanna, whereas you might expect the H and the I to be the other way around, given that it looks like a diminutive form of Rihanna, and that's the way they are around in Rihanna. Now, I don't know whether she spells it that way in order to distinguish herself from the person about to talk, or whether that's just a coincidence, but the fact is, just before the Rihanna, who we now all know, that Rihanna, about two years before she started having hits in this country, there was another Rihanna who had a couple of hits records in this country in about 2003 spelt the proper way around or the more obvious way around of R-H-I-A-N-N-A she had a hit with a record called Oh Baby which got quite a lot of airplay it seemed to have been you know quite heavily championed by the sort of the Radio 2s of the world and it's indeed you know a, a solid little group it's based around this rather nice sort of early 70s sort of you know funk sample and she was very striking looking some mixed race features were very pale and kind of freckly skinned like this massive gingery afro and a couple of years after she had released it, I actually met her. I was doing a gig up in Leeds for Silky, great Liverpool comedian, Paul White, one of the best comedians on the circuit and also one of the best independent comedy bookers on the circuit. I like Silk if you're listening to this. But he was running a gig in Leeds, and I was doing this gig in Leeds. This was in about, I guess, about 2000, about 2006. And there she was in the audience, absolutely unmistakably so, really dizzy. She's tiny. She's like, if she's five foot, she's only five foot. I think she's, you know. But I went, hey, you know, and, and I didn't, I think at the time, Barbadian Rihanna hadn't hit yet. So I didn't ask her, how do you feel about about essentially having your name nicked by a much bigger act. But this is, I'm not really aware of any other, I think 
the stuff was still available during the early years of the ascent of Rihanna, but I think it may have been reissued with her surname appended to it, and I can't remember what her surname is, to try and create some kind of a distinction between the two artists. But that must be very, because something I'm always fascinated by, I think I talked about this last time when we were talking about King Swamp. I'm fascinated by one-hit wonders. You know, it must be a really weird experience when you have a massive hit record. At what point does it dawn on you that that's it and you're not getting another one? I'm also fascinated by sort of no-hit wonders, the ones who are launched with quite a degree of Ballyhoo fanfare and PR, and then for whatever reason, it just kind of doesn't happen. That's kind of a fascinating process. But this is kind of unique because she had a couple of hit records and then suddenly was obliterated by somebody with almost exactly the same name coming along and being an infinitely bigger deal than her. I can't think of another instance of that. It's like as if there'd been, I don't know, a band from, I don't know, a band from Nottingham in 1960 called The Beatles with Two E's. Was, yeah. Well, there probably was, but you know, but it's like if they'd had like a couple of minor hits on Joe Meek's label in like 1961, and then found themselves completely bulldozed from history by another band with the same name but spelled differently. That's the closest thing I can think of to an analogy, because you know that that's that's how big Rihanna R I H is now, as about as big as it's possible to get in the 21st century. It must be a very very weird feeling to have had hit records under the same name and then just get completely overwhelmed like that. Well, it's not even like, you know, there are bands where they have clearly taken the name from the previous band of the same name, like the Primitives, like the Charlatans. And, you know, it's, it's up to you, you know, which has eclipsed the other. But this, like you say, is somebody with the same, not unusual name, but uncommon name as well. Well, you know, it's enough yeah. of a name to be marketed by just that name alone. Yeah. Like, Harry Styles isn't just Harry, is he? You know, no, that sort exactly, of thing. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. what are the chances of that? It's like the Alan Moore thing about the way, you know, you get lots of different people inventing the fridge all over the world at the same time. There must have yes. been some kind of idea space conflation that resulted in two singing Rihanna's whose music wasn't that distant from each other either. They're in sort of overlapping genres, certainly. You know, I mean, it's not like one of them was singing you know, metal and the other one was singing reggae, you know. They could both be described as soul singers of one kind or another, perhaps R&B singers of one kind or another. And I felt, you know, greatly because I really like that. I think I've got our album somewhere. Just such a bizarre thing to happen, you know. If I ever run into her again, I'll ask her how she's doing. I mean, I think I had a bit of a Wikipedia shifty. And as far as I can tell, she's still active in the music industry. I think she's producing now or something. That's just a really, really odd one. What struck me as well is that record, like I say, oh baby, that got a lot of airplay. That did a lot of circulation. It's not like it was a completely circular thing. But if I mention to anybody now that you do realise there was another female vocalist called Rihanna who had hit records a couple of years before the big Rihanna broke. People just have no idea what I'm talking about. It's almost like people's memories have decided to skip it because it just makes things simpler. Do you ever find that? That the sort of the popular consciousness mind takes a collective decision to erase something, not because of anything that person did, but just because it makes things tidier. That I don't have to be juggling two singers called Rihanna in my head, so I'm going to completely forget that one of them ever existed. What possible explanation? It's as Grace Dent said when she was on Looks Unfamiliar recently, there is this black hole from when we all got really excited 
excited about everything being digital. There's a whole couple of years where most people just bought the download versions of albums and singles or bought books for their Kindle. I was thinking about this the other day. When was the last time you actually saw somebody reading a Kindle? And I was thinking, I've since re-bought books I originally bought for Kindle. I mean, I had several Catman Rands just on the Kindle. In fact, I had one of Grace's just on my Kindle and I've since bought a physical copy of that. But Rihanna is very much, I mean, Wikipedia links to her MySpace page. That's the only yeah. external link on there. So it is part of that that lost world when we thought everything was going to be. I don't buy the idea that physical media is over because I think people are slowly coming back to it because things can just vanish or be on obsolete technology. And yeah. I think she is right in the apex of that. Yeah. It's so easy to forget about her because you have to maybe dig out an iPod and like find an actual connector that connects an yes. iPod to something to listen to her. Yeah, there is also there's a kind of a weird nostalgia block blind spot around the early noughties and I think what it is because I mean for example I don't know whether this is different now but so when you when stuff first started getting posted on YouTube for sort of nostalgia purposes you do alright for stuff that was new because people had you know had just uploaded it because everybody had it and it was fresh and then there was stuff which had been uploaded because people were finding it on the old VHSs in the 80s and everything but that kind of first half of the noughties was very very poorly served because it wasn't old enough for any to be looking back at it fondly enough to post it for nostalgia purposes but it wasn't current anymore either and I think that she may well have fallen into that little cultural blind spot as well we talk about now about the perpetual present and the fact that everything is permanently available all the time for example this makes it all the harder to break through as a new music act because you're not just up against all the other bands who are an acts who are new and are being hyped and pushed out by the record companies and by the PR companies you're up against everybody who's ever existed because kids are you know just finding out now or 11 12 year old kids just getting into music on a sort of you know proper grown up basis is just finding out about this David Bowie guy who was brilliant and amazing and constantly surprising and was putting records out for 50 fucking years it's that much harder for the new stuff to break through because it's up against everything you know people are still rediscovering the Beatles people are still rediscovering Led Zeppelin and how are you going to get somebody to listen to you know a new hard rock band when they can actually still be listening to you know Led Zeppelin the you know the original and best as it were that sort of I think that perpetual present kicks in towards the end of the noughties I think sort of one of the defining moments of it was probably when the people grew weary of Simon Cowell telling them what Christmas number one was year in year out and just took a collective decision to make it killing in the name by Rage Against the Machine now what was significant about that of course is that Rage Against the Machine played no part whatsoever in that process Rage Against the Machine weren't even consulted they didn't reissue the single they didn't, no it was just there to be I think they weren't even keen were they from what I, I don't know. think you know, they probably weren't in particular no I've no idea I don't even recall anybody asking them but it was there it was downloadable so everybody downloaded it on the same day and it got to Christmas number one and that I think was the first you know concrete example of the existence of the perpetual present that everything that was ever been out ever is available right now somewhere to the point now where it's actually kind of confusing when something isn't I was going through Spotify the other day compiling my 1981 mix I've been doing this for all the formative years of my youth getting the chart website and looking through it week by week and remembering not necessarily even the songs I particularly like but the ones that hold the most memories for me and compiling a big sort of you know 200 track Spotify list of everything that I remember from the entire year and sometimes you discover stuff that isn't on Spotify Imagination aren't on Spotify you know Lee John really Lee John I can't find them maybe somebody with better Spotify food than me can track them down but when I came to you know load up Just an Illusion and Body Talk by Imagination on my 1981 mix 
find them could I not? Well, the move aren't there either, I think. Are they not? Or they, they, the first... At least they weren't last time I checked. Well, the first thing I'll ever play on Radio 1, therefore, is not on Spotify. Fascinating. It may be since I last looked, but I think Slade weren't on there either. Heavens, that's bizarre. Well, I know you've got bands that held out against it because, well, because it's a rip-off, basically. ACDC held out the longest, I think. They didn't want their stuff on streaming anywhere. But you know, like I say, that, that kind of perpetual present, that really kind of kicks into at the end of the noughties. So you end up with a bit of, I, I can tell you, you would end up with a bit of a blind spot for stuff like, say, 2003, 2004, which is not long enough ago yet to have acquired any nostalgic value, but has also lost any currency that it might have had. So why is that going to be preserved? I mean, it could well be now that that stuff's up there because it's like, 10, 12, 15 years later and a couple of another generations have come down the pike for whom 2003 is all cherished childhood memories. Yeah, I mean, is Rihanna <laughs> Rihanna Prime, shall we say? Rihanna Mark 1, is she on Spotify? I've not actually looked. I've not looked. I did actually make some effort to try and track her down before recording yeah. this just to see if I get it. I can't find her anywhere. If you're, I've no doubt if you are out there, somebody will point you towards this. So please, please get in touch because I would love to hear your story. Okay, when we were talking about going back to physical media, will we ever go back to analogue games? That's a question I've been wondering since you brought up this sensation, which I've absolutely forgotten about, and amazingly, I've managed to find an advert for. Pocketeers. Pocketeers, terrific little pocket-sized games you can play anywhere. As much fun as you can fit into your pocket. From Palitoy. That, as brief as it was, was an advert for Pocketeers. I remember these so fondly. Mitch, I hope you do too. Very fondly, but I've completely forgotten about them, much like yourself. Pocketeers were, I think, they were quite a big deal, but only for, I would suggest, for about two years or so. They're very much a product of what fans of the chart music podcast would refer to as the 80s. This notion that sort of about 1979 to about 1982 has its own separate cultural identity. It is neither the 70s anymore nor really the 80s yet. So these, I think, were a product of the Aventies. I remember these being around sort of about 78, 79 to about 80, 81. What they were, essentially, was sort of analog Game Boy antecedents. They were pocket-sized. They're kind of mobile phone-sized. They're probably the best. They're kind of iPhone-sized is the best way to describe them. And they were little plastic boxes, generally with a clear lid, and contained, sealed indeed, within these plastic boxes, was a little playable game that you could play on the bus or you could play in break at school or you could play just, you know, when you had an idle moment. And there were an awful lot of variations upon the dribble the little steel ball until it falls down the hole. But there were also slightly more interesting ones like there was, I seem to recall, a, a sort of a horse racing one where you wound it up and let it go and then there was some kind of random factor which propelled the horses across it at a sort of a different speed so you could put little bets on with yourself to which horse is going to come in. There are various sort of target shooting games where you had like a little pivotal twangy elastic band powered gun thing that would fire the little steel balls at targets rather than just try and dribble them in by tilting the box there was fruit machine variants there was a lot of them I think so I think the idea was that they were quite cheap I think they were only a couple of quid each even in those days they may have been less than a quid I don't know my metric for that is I remember when Star Wars figures came out in 78 they were 99p that's the thing which stays in my memory as we go trying to gauge what toys did or didn't cost back then I think the idea was, of course, that you would collect them. You would have a box of these things, and when you were setting off on a trip, be it in a long, boring bus ride or a train or anything, you would select a couple of these things to take you. 
They were, I'm guessing, probably eradicated by the early handheld electronic games, which would have started to turn up in the early 80s in an incredibly primitive form. I got, I remember for the Christmas of 1981, trying to remember what it was called, but a little handheld Space Invaders thing that was uh, made out of yellow plastic. I've now got an emulator for it on my phone. The early handheld electronic games would have started to appear in the early 80s, and I'm guessing that's probably what put to the pocketeers but they were a fun thing for a while they really were well i think that absolutely is what happened because there is a website out there that reviews them all in release order what oh, wow. is, as you say it was just a couple of years they were around and they start off with the first batch of them are things like there was cup final fruit machine the derby grand prix pinball it's like somewhere between superstars on the bbc and what you thought a pub was at that age <laughs> yeah, full of men playing very singular games. That's how I always envisaged it anyway. But very quickly, I mean, they were going to diversify anyway. You got things like Time Machine, a Rat-A-Tat, which is what everyone remembers, the gangster one, where it was, you know, the sort of Prohibition era one firing ball bearings at gangsters, which probably wouldn't fly as a game now. But then they started to do Smurf-branded ones about a right. year into their existence. And then they start doing Space Invaders and things, trying to copy the arcade game. So it must have been the case that they thought, yay, we've got a smash on our hat. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. We've got to contend with this now, have we? And they did just almost come and go. Not without anyone noticing, because, you know, I don't know anyone, at least male my age, who didn't have one, at least one. No. But yeah. they just vanished. Like, it wasn't like they fell from fashion. It was just like, almost like they hadn't existed. I mean, it's one of the fascinating things about this podcast in general is the difference between things which kind of fade from the popular consciousness through, I guess, sort of, you know, cultural erosion, and then things which are sort of obliterated either by as in the case of Rihanna Mark 1 the sudden appearance of something which replaces it or things which are sort of purged because for one reason or another the collective decision is taken that we shall never speak of this again and I think we got one of those coming up before the end of the show <laughs> but with Pocketeers I think it may well be an example of type 2 you know that these created a marketplace for small handheld games which they were then completely unable to hold on to once the electronic version started to come out but they are fantastic little pieces of kit i mean just They're great they? the yeah. there, i was thinking i would like to get some and then looked on ebay you thought oh yeah no maybe i wouldn't like to they oh, like go for a fortune but the odd yeah. thing is there must be millions of them out there because they were pretty much indestructible you know true, you yeah. drop your phone now is what you play games on now you're probably gonna have to get a new screen a pocketeer you could probably have thrown at a wall several times in frustration and it would still be completely intact no they were very very hard wearing and, and I think they were almost designed to you know you could almost trade them a trade may have gone on in our school playground if you were getting bored with one swapsy it with somebody who was getting bored with another one and you could actually trade them with each other yeah and then that was the closest you could have to having sort of because of course the other the difference between Walkmans and subsequently MP3 players is they could only do the thing that's physically inside them so obviously the game could only ever be that game and I'm guessing even the very primitive electronic handheld stuff you had a degree of variation 
of the game within it. And then, of course, subsequently, the Game Boy comes along in the early 90s and you've got actual game carts like a TV console and you can switch them over. Yeah, they were very, very popular. I don't think I knew anybody who didn't have any. I may even still have some. I'll have to try and have a proper rummage around my mum's house and see if any of them are still in existence. I think I had, like, a poker one, but I'm not entirely sure I knew how that worked. I think I had a racing one with sort of little magnetic cars that went around the kind of Grand Prix track. And that, that was particularly groovy. I think I had, you know, there was sort of a lot of variations on Bagatelle slash Pinball, and I definitely had a bunch of those. Of course, they all had names, none of which I can remember now. They had sort of, you know, their own groovy little titles. And like I said, an awful lot of them seem to be variations on those Christmas stocking kind of tilt this until the little metal ball falls down the hole. One could imagine weirder things than in an age when vinyl is making a comeback than people suddenly getting into pocketeers again. And it's a bit like what you say about, you know, we're starting to understand the impermanence of virtual media and that the trouble with electronic media is, yes, it's great having all your movies on your Amazon account rather than shelves full of DVDs. But in the unlikely event that Amazon go bust, that's your movie collection gone. Or just, you know, Amazon could at any point just decide to erase your movie collection for whatever reason. Whereas if you have them on DVD, you've got them. And then again, we understand the impermanence of even electronically conveyed solid media because I don't know about you, I have boxes and boxes and boxes of VHS tapes and nothing to play them on. And no obvious way of ever getting hold of anything I can play them on. Even sort of electronically rendered physical media has an impermanence. And really nothing is future-proof except books. Okay, they are vulnerable to the environment in all kinds of other ways, but they're not just going to stop working. So weirdly, the more primitive something is, the more future-proof it is. Well, you say that, but with your next choice, there's actually some proof in here that even physical media wasn't entirely safe all the time, which will come back to. But this is a programme where I suspect you may have actually played one of your pocketeers during the ad breaks off. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm actually the trendy correspondent on this show, and um, I've been... uh, I've actually been travelling around the country during the week trying to find out what's trendy for you. And um, I've been up to Liverpool, you know. I don't know if you know, but there's a big 60s revival going on up in Liverpool, you know. And there's old families trying to live on eight quid a week. And uh, there's a big 30s thing going on as well, you know. Like, I mean, you're nobody unless you've got rickets, you know. And, like, there's old shops in town sell nothing but leg irons. It's really amazing. And everybody's putting on berets and going to fight in Spain, except that's called the World Cup. Okay, that was Alexi Sale being absolutely brilliant as usual in the very first stage of his career when nobody really knew who he was. What was he appearing on there, Mitch? Well, this is the first time I ever saw him, and I may even have seen that exact one, although my memories of this are sort of scrambled and filtered through sort of various layers of grievance. This is a classic example of something we were talking about where something has been purged. This did not fall down the memory hole by accident. This was rolled up and shoved down the memory hole. This is a show that I cannot remember anybody mentioning since about 12 months after it was on which is knocking on for 40 years ago now. This is OTT this was, Tiz was for grown ups. Now I was slightly late to the party with regards to Tiz was anyway because something which I was fairly sure about but I actually know that Tiz was started off on ATV in Birmingham and was only slowly rolled out to the regions and I don't think we got it in Granada until it had already been on for about 3 or 4 years which I think was exactly the right time to get it because that was the point at which it really hit its stride sort of 78, 79 
time is when it really was. Because Swap Shop began 76, I think. Tiz was was essentially the punk Swap Shop. It was, you know, Swap Shop was very aspirational. It was incredibly middle class. It was all incredibly polite. It was all about how parents like to think that their children were, whereas Tiz was was how the kids actually were. You know, it was snotty and horrible, but it was very, very entertaining and funny. And properly anarchic, because I guess early morning Saturday TV, people, you know, these people were being left almost entirely to their own devices. So that and the Kenny Everett video show were the two shows on around sort of the mid-late 70s where you genuinely got the impression that you could get taken off air at any minute because nobody was supervising these guys. It was, you know, a genuine sense of anarchy. And at some point, it dawned on them that their audience consisted almost entirely of grown-ups, or at least substantially of grown-ups, because they had this, you know, freewheeling and anarchic sense of humour. The kids were watching it because it's Saturday morning. What else are you going to do? The grown-ups were actually, you know, largely, sort of, I guess, hung over from Friday night grown-ups were forcing themselves out of bed at half nine on a Saturday morning and then just pissing themselves at Tizzle's because it was genuinely a very, very funny show. And the decision was taken at some point, I guess, in 81. The, and this is why, you know, I've ended up... This is not a show I remember with any fondness. A, because it sucked, and B, because it did a lot of damage. It was a bad show that ruined two good things, of which more in a moment. The decision was taken among the, the Tiswell's hardcore, who were principally Chris Tarrant, John Gorman, guest Lenny Henry. Sally James refused to get involved with this, rather tellingly, to do, essentially, adult Tiswell's on a Saturday night at about half ten till midnight. It was about 90 minutes long, I think. And this show was rebranded OTT, and it was essentially more or less what it said on the tin except how it used to define what was written on the tin was all rather unfortunate it was the first show that Alexis Sale ever appeared in as far as I know he left quite early on when I think he realised that he'd been slightly sold a bit of a lemon and that this is not really a kind of show that he wanted to be associated with it's incredibly telling that when Alexi left he was replaced with Bernard Manning that kind of tells you because here's the thing it's I suppose, like I say, like the Kenny Everett show and like the young ones which came along about 10 months later, because this was very early 82. That sort of post-punk comedy TV, what we'd ultimately know as alternative comedy TV, had not really defined itself. All that you knew that it had to be, the only rule was that it had to be transgressive in some way. But what form that transgression was going to take had not really been defined. This is where the Tizwas guys kind of exposed themselves for being basically 70s guys. These were pre-punk guys. These these were not post-punk guys. These are these are not alternative guys. These are very, very mainstream 70s guys because it's like the first thing that they think of, how do we make this transgressive? The first thing they think of is tits and ass. It's tis was with tits and ass. And Christ, it's grim. Now, I remember watching, I can't remember how I got to see this because I would have just turned 12. So this was not for me. I think I may have got to see it on the weekends when me and my sister would stay at my grandma's. And I think my grandma would nap off to bed and leave me to watch like Hammer movies on BBC Two at one in the morning. Or I think out of sheer curiosity, I put OTT on and I thought, oh Christ, this is grim. Because none of the comedy works. It's incredibly laboured. Alexi looks like he really wants to be somewhere else. Chris Tarrant looks like he's having a good time, but really nobody else does. The audience seem like mortified and embarrassed. Like all, all the jokes get these sort of nervous spasms of apologetic laughter. And every now and again, some woman will whap a tits 
that for no apparent reason. And it's just, again, it's like we were talking about with that awful sex-obsessed phase of late-night TV in the late 90s. It's not even remotely erotic. There's something about the British character. We can't do erotic. All we can do is dirty. You know, it's like, way. Like, you know, there's nothing titillating about, whoa. You know, there's nothing. Even actual British porn has usually got some arsehole from Chelmsford from behind the camera going, whoa, hey, whoa. Like, will you, will you shut up? I'm trying to forget you're there. And this is just, oh God, it's grim. It's really great. I mean, it lasted, I think, about 10 weeks. And then I'm amazed it lasted that long, actually, because shows have been taken off the list. It's really, really bleak. But what's worse about the fact that this really genuinely bad show was on on a Saturday night is that it ruined two good shows. Because first of all, the Tizwas regulars had all decamped to do this really dreadful tits and ass version of Tizwas. So Tizwas itself, which was still on on a Saturday morning, got handed over to the B team. So all the regulars, i.e. the people who were really good at presenting Tizwas, were now presenting this dreadful Benny Hill version of Tizwas. Whereas your actual Tizwas was presented by Sally James and a bunch of ringers. And one of the ringers was Den Hegarty at Yes! <laughs> who was the bass vocalist in darts and who, as a kids' TV presenter, made a great bass vocalist. The trouble is, Dan Hegarty jumping ship from darts to go and present Tiz was kind of fucked up darts. Because I really love darts. For the uninitiated, darts, British-American doo-wop band from, again, the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, who had this sort of streak of comedy running through everything they did, partly because their bass vocalist was this weird shit gambling Herman Munster type freak called Ted Hegarty <laughs> and while he was on stage the band just couldn't help but be a little bit silly and that made darts a great fun band when Dan Hegarty fucks off he gets replaced with this incredibly cool big black American guy whose name escapes me who has actually got a far better bass register than Dead, but he's cool and good looking and as such darts are not funny anymore so you've got this really bad TV show OTT which not only sucks but it's spoiled two things that were good. It spoils Tizwas, and it tangentially spoils darts. So, almost uniquely among all the things I've ever brought up on the show, this is not something I remember with any affection whatsoever. I actually bear it quite a grievance, but I just think it, what is fascinating about it is, when was the last time you ever heard OTT being brought up anywhere by anyone, ever? I think the last time would have been, last time there was a clip show that I might have been on, to be honest, for all I know, yeah. with people talking about bad TV, because they all Always show. I think they were just called the balloon dancers when they were on OTT, but it was the Malcolm Hardy's thing, the greatest show yeah. on legs. And greatest for some reason, that always gets put in like TV hell moments. It's just some men dancing with balloons. It's meant to, you know, look ridiculous. It's meant to look unpleasant yeah. to other people. Well, that's the thing about, in, in actual fact, Malcolm and the balloon dancers, one of the bits of OTT that works the best well, if only because it is what it is. OTT is constantly trying to be something other than what it is. It's trying to be funny and it's not funny. It's trying to be anarchic and it's not anarchic it's trying to be titillating and it's not titillating it's trying to be sort of you know i don't know exciting in zoo format and it's not it's just dull and really shambolic and like they do a, a that's life spoof which is half as good as the one that not the nine o'clock news did like five years previously it's just grim it's really really tawdry and depressing the reason they'll show the greatest show on legs thing is because it works as a standalone clip so yeah if you're going to show a clip of ott it kind of evokes the sort of general sordid atmosphere that it has <laughs> in that it's sort of three ugly naked guys <laughs> 
So it kind of evokes the general sort of sordidness and tawdriness that the show had going on for it. But it doesn't actually represent what the show was about. What the show was about, I think, was cataclysmic overreach. But what's kind of fascinating is the extent to which everybody seems to have escaped pretty much unscathed. Because Tarrant, of course, 15 years later, he's Mr. Millionaire. And it's not like he was exactly out of work in the meantime. Len just, I don't know, seemed to sort of brush this off and, and move on. I suppose one could ask whatever happened to John Gorman and Bob Cowdery's. Side note, I first saw Bob Cowdery's in 1977 when he came to play my grandma's square's jubilee party. Well, people forget he was the co-anchor of Surprise, Surprise for well he over was, a decade. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I yeah. better think he so just Cowdery's retired. Escaped. He just had enough. I think he did. I think he did. But the weird thing is, here you go, here's a, another little side note. You could have done an adult Tiswas that worked, and it would have been Tiswas. And I know this because I, I'm guessing sometime about 1981, went to see the live Tiswas touring no, show at the really? Liverpool Everyman. Oh, yeah. wow. I've never Me met anyone who actually went, went to the live shows. I went to the live show at the Everyman, at the Liverpool Everyman. And it was an absolute hoot. And they just did all the regular Saturday morning stuff. They did the Flam Flinger, they did Compost Corner, they did Hootie Elba, they did, and it was brilliant. And the audience, I think, was probably 60, 40 grown-ups to kids. And, you know, everybody shouting, Compost Corner. And, you know, and adult Tiz was, could have worked if they'd just done Tiz was. But for some reason, it was like, you know, well, it's half ten, so let's get some tits in, you know. So it's got this awful kind of 70s feeling to it, because that's what I mean about how it became apparent that Tiz was was a show put together by 70s guys that was now trying to operate in it. Because I've got a theory that, you know, as it's all come out about just how hideous the sexual politics of BBC Radio were in the 70s, just how much of it was all going on. My theory as to why the 70s seems to have been the grimmest decade for sexual harassment is what you had was a world run by 50s guys who'd come through the 60s. 50s attitudes been pursued with 60s abandoned. Because in the 60s, there was a sort of a great liberation in terms of the expression of sexuality. But what there wasn't was any kind of examination of sexuality. So in the 70s, you've got 50s attitudes, you know, rampant misogyny being pursued with the kind of abandon and self-declared freedom of the 60s generation. And I think that's why the 70s seems to have been the grimmest time for that kind of misogyny, because in the 50s you had rampant misogyny, but it was buttoned up, or at least it was all going on sort of, you know, behind closed doors. And then in the 60s, everybody's just like, yeah, let it all hang out, man, and just express yourself. So in the 70s, it's just like, oh, good, I'm going to give full reign to my rampant misogyny. And that's really, OTT feels more like sort of a hangover from that than anything sort of embracing this new world. Because the idea that alternative comedy was going to be right on had not yet taken root. It was just known that it was going to be transgressive in some way. It was going to break the rules. But like I say, maybe if you were a 70s guy, the first thing you think when you think, how do I be transgressive is tits. Well, I've got two theories about why, I mean, aside from that whole horrendous, I mean, because I didn't see it at the time, I seen bits since and it's it is not it's, nice it's it is it's just grotesque it's it really bleak. is but yeah. there's two more prosaic theories about why it just didn't work as a program and the first is I've always held this some things work as programs because they work against their time slot you know Tis was yes. they were always pushing the edges but it's on a Saturday morning they move it to an unrestrained time slot it doesn't work well that reminds me of two things that I'm not going to bracket with OTT because I think they were better endeavours than you know yeah. maybe they're giving credit for and also there's a very real possibility you may have been on one or both but one of them was <laughs> 
corner. You know, there was Melon Sue did Light Lunch, which was tremendous because, you know, you didn't expect to see that in the middle of the day. That's yeah. why it's successful. Then it gets moved to a later slot where it's Late Lunch. And they actually did the trailer about how much more unrestrained it was going to be. They're singing a song saying, it'll be rawr, and that sort of thing. And it just didn't work because it, nah. they didn't have restrictions to work against. So the other was so Graham Norton. People loved it because it was this really wild show. On a Friday, at the end of the working week, you know, going so much further than everything else, they put him on every night. The yeah. last thing at night is V. Graham Norton. He visibly got tired, very, you know, exhausted, very quickly. And it just, it just turned a bit unpleasant, really, in some respects. And I think, credit to him, he's kind of admitted that since. And basically, it's the same yeah. with OTT. And also, there's a thing about, it gives the air of, they just thought, if we stand in front of the cameras, something will happen. Which, you know, it will yeah. if you've got a studio audience of kids, because kids are unpredictable and rowdy and lively, especially on yeah. Saturday morning. Adults aren't going to do that. And, you know, the following year, they rebranded OTT as Saturday Stayback, which wasn't good. Yes. At least had a format where it was, they were locked in a pub, and it was like, quick, 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 you're on now. And, you know, like Phil Cool doing five minutes of impression, doesn't yes. he? And at least they gave some structure to that. But OTT, it just felt like they were just not even winging it, just like waiting for somebody else to do something. No, you're right. It's agonising. But I think that's a very, very interesting point you've made there, that to a certain extent, creativity is born of butting up against your limitations. It's exactly what we were talking about, bizarrely, when we were talking about Britpop, where you take those limitations away, it's Star Wars and the prequels, <laughs> isn't it? One of the reasons Tears Wars was so fascinating and so genuinely kind of anarchic is this feeling that they're doing shit that you're not supposed to do at 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Whereas when you do it at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Who cares? Creativity comes when you smack into the walls. That's when you get creative. If there are no limits, then it's shapeless. Yeah, that's very, very astute. Well, I've got another analogy that kind of ties that in with what you were saying about how it ruined Tis was as well, which is, you know, you mentioned the live tour. Obviously, everyone knows the Bucket of Water song, but right from when Tis was got popular, you know, with John Gorman on board, they've made a load of brilliant singles. People like Neil Innes were involved as well, where they were funny comedy records. They're actually still funny now. The one Lenny Henry did as Algernon Razzmatazz, Algernon wants you to say okay, is one of my favourite records ever, because, you know, it's a proper (laughs) good song, as well as him going okay a lot. But when they all leave, and, you know, you've got Gordon Astley, Fogwell Flack, Sally James, and Den Hegarty do the Year of the Pie, credited to the pie and ears, and on the cover, it's got Fogwell Flack with some big Prince Charles ears on and a custard pie. (laughs) It's it's a record I don't think I've listened to more than once. I own every Tiswell spin-off single, and, (laughs) yeah, that's right at the end of the CD I made of them, and I usually turn that off when it gets to that. And you think with Den Hegarty involved, having been in darts, it'd be good as well, but no. No, it's a terrible, terrible shame, because Tiswell had another good few years to run on it. And what one senses, I think one senses a degree that, you know, we blew that. You know, I think they know they blew it. That, you know, they fucked up a good show in the name of making a bad show. I mean, how much longer it would have lasted anyway? Who's to say? It would have been better if it had had a chance to evolve into something else. If maybe the presenters had left one at a time and been replaced one at a time. So the rest of the A-team are still there to give long enough for the new guy to settle in. And then, you know, one of the other ones lives in it. You know, it could have evolved. It could have progressed. Instead of which, it got abandoned by the people who are making it to go off and make this hideous mutant cousin of itself and it gets handed over to essentially a bunch of ringers why would the audience go for that that's a big ask to make of an audience because ultimately it's a show is not really it's like when the company that made the bake-off sold out to channel four and didn't bother on melon sir well you've still spent 25 million quid on a tent you know uh, um to what extent does your consist of a format or to what extent does it consist of particularly when it's a freewheel in a format it consists of the personalities of the 
host. So I don't think you can replace the entire presentation squad wholesale and expect it still to be the same show. And I think, you know, the, the viewing public probably can cope with me on that one. Well, you say you can't replace the entire main cast of the show, but your last choice is about to <laughs> disprove that. Phil will have suggested to you that's the weird spooky psychedelic bit of the rainbow theme that you never heard on television or did you Mitch why was that there one of the weird things which has become sort of quite a current thing on the internet in the last couple of years ever since somebody discovered it is Bungle Mark 1 most people now know that the Bungle from Rainbow who those of us of a certain age grew up with with the big round head and the tiny little eyes and the general sort of you know teddy bear rotundness that that was not the original Bungle suit and moreover that the original Bungle costume was fucking terrifying. It's tall, thin, and scrawny with these mad staring eyeballs. And that has now, you know, that is now quite common knowledge. What is weird, though, is that you'd think, therefore, it would also be common knowledge that there was a time before Jeffrey on Rainbow that Jeffrey was not the original presenter on Rainbow. Because uh, that suddenly popped into my head because I was thinking, did another podcast recently for a friend of mine, Emma Clark, is about music, about my sort of, you know, my lifelong association with music. And for years, I have believed that the first album I ever owned was the first Wombles album. Not the one with Remember You're a Womble and all the hits, but the one with the theme tune on and a bunch of character songs written by Mike Bat for the individual characters. And I remember being given that for my fourth birthday. And for many years now, I think I even mentioned it in one of my radio shows, I believed that that was the first album I ever owned. And then I suddenly remembered that, wait, I also owned a Rainbow album. And I do not mean Richie Blackmore's post-deep <laughs> purple rock combo of All Night Long and I Surrender fame. I refer of course to the tv show but these songs were not by rod jane and freddie or indeed rod jane and matthew the previous iteration of rod or jane and Freddy, rod jane and roger which is what we rod always jane called them roger. in our house these were by essentially a band and this is all i could remember was the band was called telltale and i'm fairly sure it's them doing the rainbow theme tune because that as far as i can tell has been constant ever since the very beginning of rainbow but i remember being very very small and watching rainbow and having this rainbow album and remembering when jeffrey joined that jeffrey there was a point in rainbow in the very very early days when jeffrey was the new guy and that there had been somebody in that role of sort of the anchor of rainbow before jeffrey and that's all i could remember is that the somebody had been the presenter of rainbow before jeffrey hayes so i had a bit of research and it was a guy called david cook about whom i can find out very very little and this is not helped by the fact that somebody called david cook I think one American Idol in about 2011. So if you Google David Cook, you mainly get that guy. But David Cook was essentially Jeffrey before Jeffrey. Now, what's interesting is the fact that from what 
few scraps of pre-Jeffrey Rainbow still, because I was almost wondering whether or not I should actually check out what very little pre-Jeffrey Rainbow exists on the internet, or just go by my own incredibly dim memories of it. But I thought, no, 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 let's just make sure I've got this right for a start. What is interesting is that there's like one whole David Cook episode, which I think must be from series one, which would have been 1972, and then there are scraps of later David Cook episodes, in at least one of which Bungle is now bearing something which much more closely resembles the Bungle suit we all remember. So obviously all the clips of Mad Staring Bungle Mark 1 would include David rather than Jeffrey, and yet nobody ever brings up the fact that there was a time before Jeffrey on it. We all now know that there was this hideous Bungle Mark 1, but nobody ever mentions that there was a time before Jeffrey, because that's what you looking at here. The other fascinating thing I just noticed was George doesn't seem to turn up until about season two. I think George, the pink hippopotamus, he turns up about the same time that Jeffrey joins, I think, about season three. Zippy is there from the get-go, but Zippy and Bungle are both obviously not being played by the guys who would then play them for most of the 70s and 80s. Bungle, who would ultimately be played by a guy called Stanley Bates, is initially played by John Leeson, who you and I all know as the voice of Canine, and what's particularly fascinating is that Zippy the voice that we all know for Zippy is a guy called Roy Skelton who was also the principal Dalek voice for most of the 70s and 80s and let's face it they're basically the same voice aren't they they're kind of the same voice I've often wondered if the Zippy voice is in any kind of an influence on Aid Emerson in his Vivian voice because it's very similar to Jeffrey you know, the Zippy that everybody knows is very audibly the same voice as the 70s and 80s Daleks but going back to really early Rainbow, Zippy is, it's somebody else doing the voice. They're doing the same kind of thing. So it's obviously, you know, Roy Skelton took the cue for the way you do the Zippy voice from the original. But the original Zippy voice was Peter Hawkins, who was the very first Dalek voice in the 60s. So one way or another, Zippy's always been a Dalek, which I find utterly (laughs) fascinating. So if there's ever a new series of Rainbow, it's got to be Nick Briggs. Yes! (laughs) I'm sorry, if, if you're listening to this, Nick, if there's ever a revival of Rainbow, you're up, mate. You're Zippy. No choice. It has to be you. There can be only one. But as regards to the musical side of things, I've read up a bit on this because Telltale did all the songs on this album. And I remember them as being more of a proper band than Rod Jane and Freddie. But looking back, they were a kind of a loose collective of musicians who looked more like a band because at least one of them was playing drums at any given time. But it turns out that there was like six or seven of them in rotation. And the guy who set them up was Hugh Fraser, who then yeah. went on to play Captain Hastings opposite David Suchet's Poirot for 20 years. There is one full episode of David era Rainbow up there, as far as I can tell. And what's kind of fascinating is it's weirdly stiff. It's Rainbow. All the elements are there, apart from George, who hasn't turned up yet. So George is not yet present. Zippy's there, but he sounds slightly different. But the whole thing is weirdly slow. And it's got this kind of strange, sedate atmosphere. There's a lot of space there's a lot of dead air between lines and maybe if Jeffrey brings anything to the mix when he finally turns up in season three maybe he's the one who finally gets some rhythm into it and makes the whole thing feel a bit more freewheeling because the whole thing is if watching David era David Cook era Rainbow now comparing it to what Rainbow then became which you know it then remained almost entirely unchanged until it finally ended in 1992 that's one thing you know it wasn't broken they weren't and they didn't fix it 
once the show hits its stride at about 75, it then doesn't change at all for the rest of its run. But all the component parts are there, but it's just all a bit stiff yeah. and, and humorless. And very educative as well, in a way yeah. that Rainbow itself wasn't straight up educational. No, no, exactly. That kind of, now pay attention, children, because this will be of benefit to you in later life. That feels a lot more front and center, whereas in classic Rainbow or, or you know, you know, rumors line up Rainbow, <laughs> um, shall we say, the whole thing's a bit more relaxed. And yeah, you're kind of, you know, you're being taught to read and count, but not in a way that's actually going to get, get in the way of just having fun with Zippy. And Zippy's, you know, he's pompous rather than just out and out sociopath like he ultimately becomes. But it is kind of fascinating watching this previous iteration of a show that we would all then come to know. I mean, it's so weird that because in my head, I probably thought of Jeffrey as the new guy for the whole time. You know the way Brian Johnson is still the new guy in ACDC by the fact he's been in that band for 42 fucking years. Ron Wood is still the new guy in the Stones despite the fact he's been in the band for 45 years. If somebody took over from somebody else, then in your head, they remain the new guy for the rest of the time. And I think somewhere in the back of my head was just this feeling that Jeffrey was the new guy, even when he'd been in the show for 20 years and nobody could remember the name of the guy who'd done two seasons before him. Well, it's funny you should say that because exactly on the rainbow theme, as I mentioned before, in between Rod Jane and Matt, who was Matthew Corbett and Rod Jane and Freddie, yeah. there was Rod Jane and Roger with Roger Walker. And that's yes. what we always knew them as, as kids in our house. And I remember like a minor kerfuffle when Freddie joined it. We regarded him as some young, trendy interloper. Yes. And he wasn't actually he was the same age as the other two. And in fact, this is one of several bizarre rainbow facts I'm going to throw at you now, was he was God. Peter Davison's housemate at university. <laughs> and they were very close. And they were on top of the pops together with the Dave Clark Five, because Dave Clark did drama at the same time as them, you know, after the hits dried up. Yeah. There's that. But some other rainbow facts have collected over the years, because I'm fascinated with the lost kind of details of rainbow as well. Do you know what screenplay David Cook wrote? I do not know. He wrote Walter, that harrowing drama that was on the first night of Channel 4. Oh, was that Ian McKellen with the guy with learning difficulties? Am yes. I right? Yeah, David Cook yeah. wrote that. You know that. what? I don't think I ever saw it, but do you remember that for about four months before Channel 4 started, on its frequency, every hour, they would show preview clips, voiced by Paul Coyer, who was the first ever voice of Channel 4 continuity. So I think I saw trailers for Walter, but I don't think I ever saw it. In the original promotional publicity for Rainbow, Zippy was identified as a snake. That's what his species is. He's a snake. Why has he got arms then? <laughs> I don't know. Presumably, it was a strain of snake that was hunted to extinction because you know, it was a natural source of zips. Oh, no, man, no, 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 no. Cause, no. I'll tell you what he is then. In that case, he's the serpent from the Garden of Eden. Because in the <laughs> No, because in the Bible, the serpent from the Garden of Eden has arms and legs and is cursed to crawl on its belly after it betrays mankind. So, yeah, in, 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 in the Bible, snakes only lose their limbs after the fall of man. So that's what Zippy is. He's literally the serpent from the Garden of Eden. A couple of other things. The early episodes have puppets called Moony and Sunshine, which are like miniature yeah. Zippy. So they're on the front of the album, aren't they? The other great thing was, in between Telltale and Rod Jane and Matt, there was another very short stay outfit called Charlie, Carl and Julian. Charlie was a woman and obviously Carl and Julian were men. Charlie Dorr later wrote Ain't No Doubt with Jimmy Nail. Well, in that case, she's worked with Guy Pratt because that was written by a good friend of mine, bass legend Guy Pratt. So 
bizarre. Also, they did another TV theme around that time, which is a theme from You and Me. Huh. This is something else been written out of history. Before UB40, there was, in the Crow and Alice era, and I think Duncan the Dragon as well, there was the acoustic guitar, You and Me, Me yeah. and You, with the oh, hippie-ish harmonies. That was them. That was them, because I remember the pre-UB40 version, obviously, because I remember UB40 covering it in the early, you know, I remember it becoming UB40. I remember there being a previous version, a previous non-UB40 version of the You and Me theme tune, but I I, I didn't know it was by them. That's fascinating. Isn't that interesting, though? Mentioned UB40 doing You and Me, that in the early 80s, there was quite a thing of replacing long-established TV themes with versions by pop groups, because I can't say what programme it was now. We're not supposed to mention it anymore, but there was a BBC Light Entertainment Children's programme that its long-running theme be worked by musical youth. I, I remember. I think it's I on the exactly B-side and never going to give you up. And the thing I loved the most about that was the one who did, like, the toasting bits on it, there was nothing else for him to do, so had to have him shout tell all your friends and your neighbours about it being gone but they didn't replace the rainbow theme probably because it is such a good recording and everyone thinks well they think it's Rod Jane and Freddie but it's not it it is Telltale it's proper people playing at being one of those prog rock bands that did 99 copies of their album to avoid purchase tax yes Well, of course, uh, another TV theme tune that got reworked in the Aventies was that's when the Mike Oldfield version of the Blue Peter tunes get kicked in. Oh, yes, of course. So, yeah, that's, you know, the BBC with his finger on his pulse and deciding in 1979 that, you know, Mike Oldfield was the hypnotist in the world. So that was uh, so that's the point at which, you know, the, the, the version which they'd been using since the early 60s got replaced by the Mike Oldfield version. Right, no, you're right. That was a thing, particularly on the BBC and in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, was get pop acts in to rework the theme tunes. You know, we were spared the Kajagoogoo version of Doctor Who, I'm guessing. Oh, that's kind of what the Kevin McCulloch version was, let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have to ask, do you think the relaunched Rainbow worked better than OTT? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, let's face it. Because again, it was... <laughs> yes, well, evidently it did because it lasted for, you know, knocking on for 20 years. And it wasn't and OTT. OTT lasted about three months. <laughs> and it wasn't OTT, yes. Yeah. All I can say is, I might go and watch some Rainbow after this. I'm not going to watch any OTT. Mitch, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, man. See you soon. Fun at One by Tim Worthington The story of comedy at BBC Radio 1 From Penny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond More details at timworthington.org